five years ago, Dr. Rick Holland came and preached. This was my first weekend to meet him, and I've heard about him for many years, and it was a thrill to meet him, an opportunity to be able to get to know him better. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Holland. Rick was born and raised in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and became a Christian while in high school. He served as a youth pastor in Georgia and in Michigan and California, and he spent 25 years at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. While he was out in California, he pastored a class out there called Crossroads, which is the college and singles ministry, and had a huge impact there, and then served also as the executive pastor under Dr. John MacArthur. In 2005, Rick founded the Resolved Conference. It's a ministry that calls a new generation, high schoolers and college students, to live lives of serious devotion to Jesus Christ. And because of that ministry and that heartbeat, he authored a book entitled Uneclipsing the Sun. We encourage you to get it. In the back it says this, Christ, the Son of God, has been eclipsed, sadly, and we've made ourselves at home in this new normal. You ought to read this. Not only the author of this and other books, but he's written in numerous theological journals. He regularly teaches at the Master's Seminary out in California. is on the faculty of the Expositor's Seminary. He has earned degrees from the University of Tennessee, the Master's of Divinity degree he received from the Master's Seminary, and his Doctor of Ministry degree from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's already made an impact in our ministry here this Friday night. He spoke at the convocation ceremony as we launched the seminary this year, Shepherd's Theological Seminary, and he was our guest speaker there and challenged our students. The Lord's used him greatly. We had an opportunity, Stephen, myself, Jonathan, yesterday to spend time with Rick, get to know him better and his ministry and get to hear things that he's offered in way of what God's doing not only in his ministry but some of the plans we have for the future as well. Just great things to sit and talk and learn from him. It was after that I learned some other things about him. He would fit greatly here into the ministries we have, even in our outdoor ministries and that. I found out that um, it's one of the joys I have is to bow hunt. He's a fellow bow hunter. Hunter, and so our men would enjoy his ministry. You're going to enjoy him. I'm going to bring him up to the pulpit for a moment because I want you to help me welcome the five foot seven. Now that's important to me. Rick, come on up here for a moment, all right? <laughs> Dr. Rick Holland, all right? Well, it is my joy to be here with you this morning. I've been to Colonial. That's where we are today, right? Colonial Baptist a few times in the past. And uh, it is... Um, this is an awkward Sunday, and let me tell you why. Dads, do you, you know what it's like uh, on um, Christmas Eve to try to gather the fr- family around, and you try to do that really special devotional, and there ain't nobody listening to you, right? They're looking for tomorrow. Well, I feel like that because Dr. Davies is coming back next week, and so I'm like the last lap, and you guys are going... You know, if we'd hurry next week, you know, we could be back. So it is um, humbling for me to be here the week before he comes back. And you are so blessed to have Stephen as your pastor. He's a dear friend. He's a mentor and an example to me. And um, he's one of the rare men who have just an equal accent of someone who's a shepherd and a preacher. Sometimes you find preachers who can shepherd and shepherds who can preach. In him, you have a sweet combination of both. If we could summon any angel from heaven, 
and he could stand here on this platform today, he would speak of Jesus. If we can invite any person who's died, anyone enjoying the glories of heaven or anyone who's experiencing the horrors of hell, and they could stand on this stage today, they would speak of Jesus. If the Holy Spirit himself were to materialize and stand here and we could conduct an interview with him, he would point to Jesus. And if God the Father were to descend from his throne and stand on this stage today, he would say, Behold, my son, listen to him and speak of Jesus. However, if the devil himself or any of his minions and demons were to abscond this pulpit and speak to us this morning, they would want to speak of anything but Jesus. In fact, they may try to speak of Jesus in a way that's false or irreverent or inaccurate, without pause or without awe. Christianity is about Jesus. We can say it like this. There should be nothing more interesting to a Christian than the person of Jesus. Nothing that satisfies our curiosities. Nothing that transfixes our minds like the person of Christ. I agree with A.W. Tozer who said those familiar words. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And we often say that sentence, but the question instantly becomes, so what does come into our mind when we think about God? What do you think of when you think of God? I had a very interesting conversation with one of my sons, who is always the budding theologian, who asked me recently, he says, Dad, when you think of heaven, who, who, which member of the Trinity do you think about? Who asks that? what my son does. And I said, well, I, yeah, I, yeah, uh, well, and then I, I got into this theological kind of musing with him. And I said, well, you know, in Isaiah six, there's a picture of the throne and God's on the throne, cherubim, seraphim. So I would, I'm thinking about the throne, but then actually in John 12, Jesus says that was me on the throne. So it was the second person of the Trinity in Isaiah six. And then Yet in Revelation 4, cherubim, seraphim, the God, the Father on the throne in Revelation 4. And then in chapter 5, you have the Son who's given the scroll, the title deed to the earth. And he sits on the throne. And then the seven spirits, uh, you know what, son? You just need to ask your mom. (laughs) What do you think about when you think about God? Well, strangely, our intuition affirms what theologians discuss in theology. The problem of thinking about God is really the problem of God himself. Most theologians would tell you that the greatest challenge and problem of the human thought process is the idea and the thought of God. Then when you consider the biblical description of God, you're even in a world of trouble more than that. What we're going to talk about this morning is the challenge of understanding our near, far God. What do we do with a God who is too far to get to and yet too close to outrun? What do we do with a God who's too far to approach and yet too close to escape? This is discussing the issues in theology that we call divine transcendence and divine eminence, transcendence, God's way out there beyond us because he's holy and we're sinful. 
God is so near us, that's imminence, we can't escape his presence and his gaze. Now, before you usher me out as being a little theologically bipolar, listen to the scriptures. Psalm 10.1 says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You ever felt like that? That God's hiding in a time of trouble? Psalm 13.1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Ever felt like that? I need God now. Where is he? And then we know that Jesus quoted David in uh, Psalm 22, and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet that same psalmist, that same person, David, in Psalm 139, who says, Where are you? How long will you forget me? My God, why have you forsaken me? That same David also says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in in Sheol, guess what? You're there too. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, says the Lord? God is everywhere. We can't escape it. That same little budding theologian I was telling you about, my, my, my son, asked me one time, we were doing, going through the attributes of God, and he says, Dad, God is, God is everywhere, right? And I'm thinking, man, discipleship is working. I said, yes, he's everywhere. He says, like, God is in our city, isn't he? He's in our city. Yeah, God is God is. In our house, isn't he, Dad? He is in our house. And I am beaming with pride. I want to tape record this and put it on YouTube. My son, the theologian. He goes, well, is he in the room with us? He is, Luke. He's in the room. Dad, is God in this ice cream? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, well, he's, he's ever, but the ice uh, uh, again, your mother is in the next room and she would be glad to answer those questions. You cannot escape God. Gerhardus Vanderloo has written this. This is an amazing insight. He says, he who says, I believe in God, says more than he can justify and more than he knows, more than he senses and more than he suspects. He says that God's reality is more real than his own life. That God is nearer than hands and feet. That he is most sublime but also most common. That he is a God in heaven above and on earth below. The furthest away and the closest at hand. The unattainable one who is already nearby us before we were even born. End quote. What do we do with the great near and far God? The God who the senses don't work with and yet who is in and around and working in our world in ways that we see and ways we can understand, ways we can sense, oftentimes revealing to our conscience that we do have a judge. How do we deal with that? Well, this is going to be a a theological kind of altitude sermon until we approach a text that we're going to look and drill down a little deeper into. Three ways to understand the near-far God, if you want an outline. Three ways to understand the near-far God. The first is to understand the distance of divine transcendence. Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but transcendence, if you're taking notes, is spelled T-R-A-N-S, 
C-E-N-D-E-N-C-E. You say, why are you doing that? Because I kept spelling it wrong, and Microsoft kept alerting me to that with all sorts of colors. You ever worked with Microsoft where it like underlines a, a misspelled word in, in red and, and bad grammar in green? Yeah, all of my letters look like Christmas letters. It's just really sad. Divine transcendence. God is spirit, John 4, 24. He doesn't have spatial dimensions. He's present at every point in space, and at the same time, space cannot contain him. There's a place where the universe actually ends. The universe isn't infinite. The universe isn't eternal. It stops, and where it stops, God is still there. He's beyond space in kilometers and miles. Transcendence is the word that tries to capture the the degree of God's majesty and holiness. How much higher he is above us than ourselves. Psalm 113, verse 5. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on earth? It often borrows the idea of height. Now, this is amazing because as we were singing those songs, I didn't tell Gary what I was going to preach on, and yet every song we sang so described this issue of God's transcendence and his eminence. It was really a work of God. The Lord is in heaven above, Deuteronomy 4.39. He's established his glory above the heavens, Psalm 8.1. He's enthroned on high, Psalm 113.5. And God calls his people to exalt him high and highly. Psalm 97, 9. You are the Lord most high above all the earth, above all gods. Psalm 57, 5. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. And I love the simplicity of Solomon. And in Ecclesiastes 5, 2, this kind of puts everybody in our place. God is in heaven, and you, you're on the earth. That's pretty simple. I think the best illustration of God's transcendence and his infinite highness from us is illustrated in, in uh, Isaiah 66. You remember that the great last chapter of Isaiah where the people have been uh, substituting false external worship for true heartfelt worship? And Isaiah quotes God and he says, um, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you can build for me? Where's a place I may rest for my hand made all these things. That would be similar to you and I going into, let's say we were transported back in time and we were invited over to dinner at Rembrandt's house. And as we're walking into the kitchen, we feel a little self-conscious. We didn't bring a housewarming gift. We look over at the easel and Rembrandt has one of his paintings that he's working on. So we make eye contact. I grab the painting. We walk in the kitchen and say, Mr. Rembrandt, thanks for having us over. I just wanted to give you this painting as a, as a way to thank you for having us over for dinner. He would say, what are you talking about? I'm painting that. That's what was going on in Isaiah 66. You're going to honor me with stuff I made? You think I'm impressed with a building? I made this stuff. Infinitely higher than us. Can't get to him. He is, as Timothy says, he dwells in unapproachable light. That's not our only problem, though. Secondly, Second way to understand the near of our God is we have to understand the nearness of divine eminence. Our worst problem is not that he's way out there. Maybe our worst problem is he's right here, right now. Eminence is quite different than transcendence. That's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E. I get the E's and the A's all mixed up. 
Eminence describes God's nearness. It accents his involvement in human affairs in our lives. Eminence describes his providence. You know, it's easy to talk about. We love talking about God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is way out there on the throne as the king. Sovereignty, it seems almost impersonal, but his providence, God's providence is when his sovereignty gets in your kitchen and deals with your life. This is his eminence. Now, interestingly, the the eminence of God, his nearness, and the transcendence, his farness, are often put together in the same passages to show the contrast. Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below, and there is no other. Even in the New Testament, there's one body, in Ephesians 4, one spirit, just as you were also called into one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, far and near all at the same time. So how do we deal with the near-far God? How do we approach a God who is too far to get to and too near to escape at the same time? Well, to answer this, we need to go to the oldest book in the Bible. And I invite you to turn to Job chapter 9, not Genesis. That's the first book in the Bible. Job was the first book that was written. It's the oldest book we have. Records the story of a man who was... Um, in a bad way during the time of the patriarchs. Now, you know the story of Job pretty well. Chapter one, Satan goes and gets permission from God, the father, to come and persecute Job, which will test his faith. And God surprisingly says, have at him. Just don't kill him. Well, part of that, at the end of chapter one, I wish we had time just to even read it. It says over and over that as uh, these bad reports start coming in, uh, the Sabaeans attack. It says uh, in verse 16, while this uh, messenger was speaking, and, and also in verse 17, while he was still speaking, verse 18, while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking. What you see is, if you see a picture Job's house, there are men, re- messengers running from every, di- every direction, descending on Job's house, and they all have really bad news. People were attacked, the servants were killed, the, lands, uh, the, the, the livestock were all taken and, and killed or stolen. Bad news, bad news. And then finally, it says, while they were still speaking, they couldn't even finish the bad news before another one added their voice. And then finally, the last one says, and by the way, a tornado hit a house where it was a party with all your kids. It says the wind came from the four corners. That's a circular motion. A tornado popped down on this house where the children were having a a party, maybe a birthday celebration, maybe a feast celebration, and killed them all. Scholars tell us that it would have taken about 45 seconds with these men talking for Job and his wife to realize they had lost everything except themselves. Be a little gentle on Job's wife when she says, curse God and die. That's how she felt. And Job, in his wonderful leadership and wisdom, said, should we not accept evil from the Lord if we're willing to accept good? That's not the end of it, though, because Job is struck with boils, sores from head to foot, these these horrific, indescribable, painful sores. Uh, Some say may have been shingles, scraping them off all day just to relieve the pressure. 
Interestingly enough, most of us finish dealing with the book of Job after chapter two. And we say, see, Job is about suffering and God is in control. And we forget that there's 40 more chapters. The book of Job is less about suffering and dealing with that. And primarily it's about Job's dealing with the problem of God's nearness and God's farness. And for that, we land in chapter nine, Job chapter nine. Let's work through this together for a moment. You know what's happening? It's a cycle of, um, of uh, arguers, of debaters, of theologians, of counselors. Job's friends are trying to tell him, well, you did this, that's what is happening. The other guy says, no, 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 you did this, that's why that's happening. The other guy says, no, you did that, that's why that's happening. But most of what they were saying, oddly enough, was pretty good theology. It just didn't apply to Job. Job's going, no, no, no. And finally, after a cycle of these speeches, Job speaks in chapter nine. Job answered, verse one, in truth, I know this is so. Now stop right there. If you're an underliner in your Bible, a highlighter, a starer, an asterisk-er, whatever you do in your Bible, do it in this verse. This is the most important question in the Old Testament and perhaps the entire Bible, the entire corpus of scripture, the entire truth of the gospel answer this question. How can a man be in the right before God? Job is saying, how can I be right before God? Then he wrestles with the nearness and the farness of God. If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. So high above us, wise in heart, mighty in strength, who has defied defied him without harm. You don't mess with God without getting in a lot of trouble. It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. These strong earthquakes commands the sun not to shine, sets a seal upon the stars. That's the cycle of day and night. Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear Orion and Pleiades, chambers of the south, who does great things, unfathomable, wondrous works without number. Now watch this way high. But then he says this, but yet were he to pass by me, I wouldn't see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. He could be right here and I wouldn't have senses to pick up that presence. Were he to snatch me away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? God is in absolute, complete control and yet we can't even see him. God will turn back his Not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him? I choose my and choose my words before him. For though I were in the right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. I've got no argument that would stand up to the God I can't even get to because he's transcendent. If I called and he answered me, if I could believe that could not believe that it was he listening to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest, multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. Have you ever had a season in your life where it's just seemed like what else can go wrong and then the phone rings? If it's a matter of power, behold, he's the strong one. Matter of justice, huh, who can summon him? Who can give him a subpoena? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. 
Though I'm guiltless, he will declare me guilty. So interesting. Though I'm righteous, my mouth will, will cause me to, be, uh, to show its guilt. Um, from, Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. When uh, Isaiah had, had his purification moment, the angel took tongs from the fire and touched him where? On his lips. Job says, I, don't, I'm not, I haven't done what these other guys have accused me of, but I, I am guilty before God. That's why he says, I am guiltless. I haven't done what they've said, but my heart affirms that I'm guilty as a sinner. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It's all one, therefore I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked of scourge, kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of his judges. If it's not he, then who is it? He's saying, what alternative do we have to the sovereignty of God? That's not a good alternative. Now, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, they see no good. They slip by me like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops in on his prey. He says, I'm dying physically. Though I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful. I'm afraid of all my pains, and I know that you will not acquit me because I'm accounted wicked. How does he know he's accounted wicked? Because the presence of God is still close enough to where he senses his wrongness before God. He can't escape God's penetrating conviction. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow, cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my clothes would abhor me. What's Job saying here? He's saying, I'm frustrated because I need to deal with God. I want that question answered. How can I be right before God? This doesn't make sense. I can't understand. I wish, I wish, I wish, verse 32. For he, God, is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, talk to him, counsel with him, that we may go to court together. There's no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Now, you can't think of a court like we do with a gown and a judge and a gavel and a jury. This court, if you've been to Israel, you've seen these right outside of the city gates was typically an L-shaped bench that the elders would sit in. We see that uh, uh, described. That was where good news and bad news came. That's where uh, matters were judged and, and decided. That's where arbitration happened. Even in Psalm 31, uh, you will rise up in the gates and, and praise her, uh, the virtuous woman. That happens here. And Job is saying, I wish I could get all the elders around. And if, uh, if God were just a man and we could converse, then we could both stand with each other, before each other, talk to each other and about each other, and someone could make sense of this for us. But my greatest frustration is not only is God not a man, there's no umpire. There's no mediator. There's no one to stand and represent me to God and God to me. There's no advocate on both of our sides to help us understand one another. That's the focus of chapter nine. You're not a man. I can't talk to you. I can't approach you. If I were to, you would be right. I would be wrong. There's no way I could argue with you. Even if I don't know where I'm wrong, I know I would be wrong and you would be right. I'd be in trouble. Your nearness shows me my sin. You know all my ways. I'm utterly condemned because your transcendence and your eminence put me in my place. 
he's saying, oh, that there was someone who really understood me as a man, because God's not a man, and could say with an approach to God, this is what it's like. And oh, that there was someone that God could send who was a man who could say, this is what God is like. How do we deal with the near far God? We understand the distance of his divine transcendence, the nearness of divine eminence, and now thirdly, the mystery of divine incarnation. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 for a moment. 1 Timothy, the second chapter. I hope by now you know exactly where this is going, right? There's no umpire. There's no mediator. I want a mediator, said Job. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And we're going to have a little lesson in Greek this morning, if that's okay. There's one God and one mediator. I would love for Job to be sitting in our presence today. One mediator. He knows now, by the way. One mediator also between God and men. Now, here's where it all kind of gets tricky. Your Bible probably says, the man, Christ Jesus. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it should be in italics, the word the. This is in Greek what we call an anarthrous grammatical situation. There is no definite article. The word the is not in the text here. And so when it's not there, you put the word a. Here's how this text should read. There's one God, one mediator between God and men. A man, a human. Job, Job, a man. Christ Jesus. Transcendence and eminence are met and solved in Jesus Christ. He alone, being man, can represent us to God. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 say he was tempted and always like us. He took on flesh just like us so that he can die for us. He understands what it means to be tempted. He understands what it means to be tried. He understands the pain of seeing friends die. He understands our plight. Yet he remained perfect. He can also represent God to us. He is God. He told Philip, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. That's why we have the gospel record. What would God be like if he were a man? He was, and that's Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Now here's what I find most amazing in that scene, that courtroom scene, and by the way, if you read Romans 3, 4, and 5, you'll see that the language is that of a courtroom scene. The cross is all about what Job asked for. In the middle of that transaction, in the middle of that court case, where Jesus was representing God to man and man to God, both sides abandoned him. We see that in the, in the disciples. Zechariah 12 says, you strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. They left him. Our sin was there. And vicariously, we left him and abandoned him as well. But don't forget, 
that beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, something happened in Trinitarian history that had never happened before. Jesus, he calls Peter, James, and John, such a precious scene, pulls him aside and says, stay here while I go pray. He goes a few feet away. He's praying with such intensity. He's sweating blood. He comes back, and what are they doing? They're sleeping. You want a devotional thought? You know what he says to them? Could you not even pray one hour? As if, come on, guys, praying for an hour is no big deal. He says, Father, remove the cup. Silence. Father, if there's any way, remove the cup. Silence. Third time, Father, if it be your will, remove this cup. The cup of wrath he was about to drink on the cross. Silence. That was the beginning of his abandonment, which climaxed on the cross just before three the next afternoon when he yells out, my God, my God, why have you, why have you forsaken me? So at the moment of his greatest representation of us to God and God to us, he accomplished salvation. Bearing the full wrath of God, paying for the sins of those who would believe righteous before God and taking our burdens with him as we sang a minute ago. Job says, for he's, he's not a man as I am that I may contend with him. God the Father says, y- yes, there's a man and his name is Jesus. There's a place I like to go. I'm in North Carolina so I can say hunting. I would say hiking if I were anywhere else, but I like to go hunting, and it's, there are two creeks that come together, Buck Creek and Piru Creek. And where they come together, they're two distinct creeks, and once they hit that confluence, they become one. Jesus is the confluence of God and man. Jesus is the confluence of God's farness and God's nearness. Jesus is the focus. He is to have first place for Colossians 1.18, where? in everything, not first place above everything, first place in everything, in our marriages, in our walk, in our recreation, in our eating, in our sleeping, in our conversing, in everything, he's first place. So how do we think about God being far, God being near? I wish, uh, I wish we sang Christmas songs and carols all year long because of the theology. There's a, our, our, our uh, music pastor uh, about two weeks ago, we had a Sunday morning and he surprised me and all we did was sing Christmas songs because he said those become sentimental more in December and it's, it's easier to see their theology when it's not attached to that season. It was a remarkable time. But we kept singing this one word over and over and it, it just locked in like a laser on my soul. How do you resolve Farness and nearness, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child, bear a son. She will call his name what? Emmanuel. Then Matthew picks up on that. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. Matthew one twenty three. Shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's the answer. Jesus is God with us. 
Romans 8 says he's for us. To me, well, my favorite hymn is, is um, And Can It Be? I just, shocking lyrics. If, it's worth reading the whole, all, all the verses in this light, but imagine if you'd never heard this before, or maybe you'd brought a person who doesn't know very much about Christianity at all for the first time today, and we sang that song. Listen to the audacity of Charles Wesley, who wrote this in the mid 1730s. Listen to the audacity of what he wrote. I I think outside of the canon of scripture, these are the most precious words ever penned by a human hand. Pretend like you've never heard this before. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my what? God should die for me? I think that would have been Job's favorite song if he were here today too. He didn't just resolve the near far God problem. He became and satisfied that problem by dying. One of the most startling moments in my life was uh, during my ordination. And um, you already heard that I was worked with John MacArthur and John was there and he asked me a question. We thought we were done. And he says, I got one more question for you, Rick. I'm like, great. He says, did God die And I found myself wanting to say no. God's the father of life. How how can you say yes? And I sheepishly said, well, Jesus was God, right? Like MacArthur was patting me on the head. Yes, little boy, that's good. I said, well, Jesus is God and Jesus died. So, yeah, God died on the cross. What? Religion says that beside Christianity. Is Jesus the most interesting person and part of your life? There are many infinite, uncountable reasons that he should be. Let's pray together. It is amazing, love, Father. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? In Christ, all questions are resolved and satisfied. All curiosities bow the knee to him. Lord, give us such an awareness of him, such an attraction to him. Cause us to do what you told the disciples. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So thankful for this church, for the legacy of their ministry, for the seminary that trains men, for the multi-dimensional ways that it impacts the community. Father, make the signature of Colonial Baptist Church, Jesus Christ, 
in the fullness of the gospel as lived out by the people who call this place home. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.